Doxology. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading tonight. Uh, we are going to be reading um, out of the book of Psalms, chapter 32. Uh, so if you could turn your um, Bible to uh, chapter 32 in the book of Psalms. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back of the pews in front of you uh, it, for the, you to take. Uh, we also have some up in the front. Uh, that is our gift to you. Uh, you can always turn to, your, uh, turn to the Bible in your phone as well. Uh, so again, chapter 32 in the book of Psalms. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from, out, from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Well, hello, everybody. It's good to be back with you. And uh, if you're new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, lead pastor here. And regardless of what your spiritual background is, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're exploring the faith, we're really glad to have you here. So uh, we are going through the Psalms this summer. And one of the helpful things about the Psalter is, you put it this way. So as you think about some of the best relationships in your life, the best friendships and relationships you have are where you can engage the other person as they really are, and they can engage you as you really are. You know, not in like the, the fake kind of Instagram way, but the real way where you can be silly and ridiculous, and you can show the dark parts of yourself to them as well, where you can engage one another as you really are. And so it is with God. That's what the Psalms do, is they help us to engage with God as we really are, and with God as He really is. And so uh, for some of you, you know, maybe consider why Sometimes your relationship with the Lord feels anemic or flavorless is because you're not actually engaging with God as you are. And I think this psalm, Psalm 32, we see this perhaps no more clearly than in this psalm because this psalm, along with Psalm 51, are two of the major psalms in the Psalter that deal with repentance or a confession of sin. And as soon as you hear that, for some of you, the force field goes up because, come on, man, like, I have a long week ahead of me. We're really going to talk about sin and repentance. Uh, but here's my hope, because I think for most of us, and, and I put myself in this bucket as well, we either grew up in a culture that was very moralistic and heavy-handed. You know, even if your family wasn't religious, right? It's just you have to achieve, achieve, achieve. And so anything now that sniffs of guilt or confession, you know, we want to run away from. Others of you, on the other hand, like, you, you know confession maybe too well, like in the wrong way, where you're always feeling bad about yourself and always confessing, but it never enlivens your life because you don't actually get how to do repentance and what it's supposed to do. But see what David says here. He starts off the psalm in verse 1, blessed is the one 
whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Uh, that word blessed means like deep happiness or joy. So what David's saying essentially is, you know, more important than the question of, uh, do you like your job? Do you like your city? Who are you dating? Who are you married to? Do you have good friends? A far more important question is, not only have you been forgiven by God, but do you experience the forgiveness of God? Because that's what leads to the blessed or the joy-filled life. And so David's going to walk us through how to not just be forgiven, but to experience this kind of forgiveness by God that's offered to us. And in a way that I hope changes how you all pray, even changes maybe, I know some of you are like, why do we do this confession every week? It just feels, you know, hopefully it like brings more life into seeing why we do, um, why we do confession every week here as a church. And so here are the three main things David will show us as we, we look at the psalm. So first we're going to see the misery of covering our sin. Then we'll see the freedom of uncovering our sin through repentance. And then finally, number, uh, number three, we'll look at the life that results from doing this. So first, number one, the misery that comes from covering uh, you know, John mentioned earlier, putting up a facade. Uh, number two, we'll look at the freedom that comes from uncovering. Uh, it's paradoxical. We lay ourselves bare. And then number three, we'll look at the life that results when we do this. Okay, so first number one, the misery of covering ourselves up. So David sets this psalm up in verse one and two. He basically gives us the conclusion before he gets into how to do it. So he says, when you go through these steps of confession or repentance, it leads to the blessed or the joy-filled life, regardless of circumstances. So let's jump to number three, because this is where he begins on walking us through how to do it. So verse three, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then jump to verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. So we don't know when the psalm was written. A lot of people speculate, with good reason, it may have been after David, you know, had that moment in 2 Samuel. Well, not a moment. I mean, it was a series of horrible moments where he took his friend Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, into his bed, and he murdered his friend Uriah, and then he lied about it. A lot of people think this was probably written after that, uh, maybe. Um, maybe not, though. The point is this was written after David was confronted with such a dark part of himself that his initial response, as is usually true for you and me, is he tried to hide it. That's why he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, and I acknowledged my sin to you, i.e., for a while I didn't acknowledge it. And so what David's getting at here is, um, you could say, he's just acknowledging what our culture refuses to acknowledge. Because we live in a culture that says, you know, we no longer believe in God, or if God's there, he doesn't really have a bearing on how we live. You know, we no longer have these moral absolutes that we need to try to bend our lives to. So we need to get away from this language of, of guilt and shame. And this was one of Friedrich Nietzsche's main critiques of Christianity, why he didn't like Christianity. He said, you know, the, the thing about Christianity is what it does is it, is it makes up a sickness called sin. And then it says, you have this sickness, but we have the answer. So if you come to church, you know, we'll teach you how to confess and repent. And so it keeps the church in business. And what he ended up saying was the church essentially created the society where even if you didn't grow up in the church, everyone's obsessing over how bad they are. But what David's saying here, he says, when I get signed, he says, no, it's not that I'm obsessed with how bad we are. It's actually that we're so obsessed with not looking at how bad we are. Because every single one of us, religious or not, knows there is something deeply wrong with us. We, we aren't as we should be in some way, shape, or form. Like, in, in, a, very, in a very core part of who we are. And I came across this uh, the other day as I was reading some works by David Carr. He was a media uh, columnist for the New York Times. He died not long ago. I think it was in 2015. And uh, before he died, he wrote a memoir card called Night of the Gun. And what this memoir is about is essentially how he went from a drug addict in his youth to he rose to the ranks, you know, in a, a 
top, uh, you know, top writer for the New York Times. And so what he does later in life is he realizes that he's reconstructed the memories of his past to make himself believe that he was such a good person. And so he's an investigative journalist. And so what he does is he like applies the razor edge of investigative journalism to his own life. And he goes back and he interviews like prior girlfriends and prior friends and prior business colleagues. And what he realizes is he comes to the horror of these memories that he suppressed. He was, he was a horrible father, a horrible boyfriend and husband, uh, a horrible business partner. And what he says towards the the end of his memoir is this. He writes, I now inhabit a life I don't deserve, but we all walk this earth feeling we are frauds. The trick is to hope the caper doesn't end anytime soon. So you were saying, I, I'm now living a life I don't deserve in terms of like I'm a, a lauded, esteemed columnist, but I don't deserve it because there's this guilt I carry from my past. So what's the answer? We just have to hope the caper doesn't any, end any time. What's the caper? The, the caper is the frivolity. It's the distraction, right, that we, we distract ourselves fr- away from our own guilt through internet, through partying, through, you know, you name it, just so we don't have to look at ourselves. But what does he say there? He says, I think all of us walk around the earth feeling like we're frauds. In other words, religious or not, there's that voice you have inside you, and it can take many different forms, uh, but it can be, you know, you're not enough. You're a coward. You're ugly. You're lazy. You fail even those that you love the most. Okay, this voice where we know there is a deep sense of condemnation that we can't shake. And so what David's getting at here is, yeah, when we are confronted with, when we stared ourselves long enough to realize this, what do we want to do? We want to cover up. Okay, so what are, what are the different ways that we try to cover? Um, and I think there are a few different ways we try to cover ourselves to distract ourselves from this, um, this deep sense of we're not as we ought to be. Uh, one, is, one is denial. You know, so we just straight up deny that there's anything wrong. Don't tell me I'm guilty. I'm not doing anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Or we go the opposite way. We just, we wallow in self-flagellation. Another way we cover is we do it through hard work and achievement. Okay, so if I can just work hard enough, then I'll know I'm enough. I know um, not that long ago I was talking with a friend who, uh, he rose up in the ranks of government intelligence. And he was just being really honest with me. And uh, we were talking, like, because he's worked himself so hard to the point of mental exhaustion and breakdown. And, like, he's involved with reports where he briefs the president and so forth. And he said, you know, (laughs) I think the reason why I've worked so hard, even at the expense of my family and my own mental well-being, is because... There were kids in grade school, like in middle school and high school, who told me, you're never going to amount to anything. And so on those nights where I want to give up, I just think to myself, with the next promotion I get, I'll get to shove it in their face. You know, when I see them at the next, uh, you know, 20-year an- uh, reunion or whatever it is. And that's what a lot of us do. We just distract ourselves with achievement and hard work so we don't have to look at who we really are. In a, th- in a fourth, what are we, number three, number four? Uh, a fourth way we do this, I think this may be the most common, is we cover up our own sense of failure and sin through criticism of other people. It's atonement through comparison, right? So we look at other people's lives, and it could be people, you know, we see online. It could be people in our families, and our workplaces. We just, you know, how could they? We, we criticize them either with other people through gossip or in our heads. We just, you know, mull uh, the tapes over in our heads about how they've wronged us, and I was reading this article written by the author Anne Lamott, and she was talking about cancel culture, and you know, just as soon as someone does something wrong, just everybody loves to just jump on them and talk about how horrible they are and cancel them. And she said something insightful. She said, 
She said, I see myself, especially when it's something that like really goes against my moral sensitivities and I get indignant. I want to jump on that train. I might not be posting on social media, but I'm thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, how could they? And how she put it was, she says, I think one of the reasons why we love to criticize other people, uh, even under the guise of like, oh, well, they wronged me, is because it works as a self-esteem ATM. And I think she's exactly right, right? Because if I can look at someone else's failings or shortcomings or how they've wronged me, that's exactly what it is. It allows me to distract myself from my own failings and sin, but but by putting them down and acts as a withdrawal, you know, from their account, and I get to add it to mine to puff myself up and feel more worthy about myself. And that that image of uh, self-esteem ATM, it's disturbingly fitting because anytime you criticize somebody else from a position of moral superiority, you're taking something from their account. You're dehumanizing them in order to lift yourself up. So David tried to cover, you know, 3,000 years ago. We're trying to do it today. And this is one of the reasons why I think we, you know, we find ourselves, a lot of people call our generation the snowflake generation. And, you know, we're not exempt from that razor's edge either because even in a culture that says, you know, you define right and wrong for you, all of us are so fragile with our identity because we know deep down there's something deeply wrong with us. We're so fragile. And we cover through all these various ways. And so... That's the, that's the hard part of this passage. So where's the good news? What does the gospel have to offer us? And what the gospel has to offer is this paradox of when we try to cover our own sin, we're inevitably going to be made miserable, right? That's why David says, my bones wasted away, or we'll be laid bare, or we can uncover ourselves before the Lord, and he'll cover our sin for us. So what are the different ways that we can go through this process now of confession, repentance, to be freed and, and covered by the Lord, And the first thing we see is when we go before the Lord to confess, we need to do so fully. So see in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So the first step toward this liberation of of bearing yourself before the Lord and experiencing freedom rather than condemnation is full acknowledgement of your sin. And this is one of the things I love about the gospel is it intersects with reality, God gives you permission, Nate, more than that, he invites you to, to be real about who you really are. So you don't ignore reality, you face it. And it's, it's intense, because in verse 1 where he says, whose transgression is forgiven, that word transgression translates into the, the phrase rebellious self-assertion. Getting at when you sin, sin isn't just a oopsies or a oh I messed up. At, at the heart of sin, sin is rebellious self-assertion. In other words, there's something so deep within us that hates being told what to do. I mean, even just this week, I got together with an old coworker, and uh, he, he got vaccinated. But he was telling me how he put off the vaccine for like a couple months because there are people in his life, like in his family and his work, who he just doesn't like. And they were telling him to get vaccinated. He's like, all right, you're telling me to get the vaccine. I'm not going to get vaccinated. And just because somebody was telling him what to do. But that, that's all of us. And, you know, I mean, even more so with God, who's the ultimate authority figure, right? We hate being told what to do. And then in verse 2, where he says, whom the Lord counts against no iniquity, that word for iniquity means a, a deep sense of perversion or twistedness about us. We're deep in our souls. We just love to go with our, whatever our desires want in the moment more than what God wants for our lives. And so acknowledging our sin, it's not just this, you know, oopsie, I messed up. It's acknowledging that you are someone who <laughs> hates, in, in some area, God being Lord of your life. 
Okay, so that's the first thing. I know this doesn't sound like good news yet, but don't worry, it is good news. Okay, so, no, so first we have to confess fully, face reality. Uh, number two, what do we need to do? We need to confess quickly. So we see this in verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. In other words, there's an expiration date when it comes to confession. And so what this means for the unbeliever is this is an urgent plea for those who don't know Jesus that when Christ comes in to, to usher in his new kingdom, he's going to get rid of all evil. And since we're all complicit in that, either his judgment will fall on us, where we're separated from the Lord for eternity, or it will fall on Christ at the cross. So there's a plea to trust in Christ if you don't know him so that you can be in his kingdom and not outside of his kingdom. There is an expiration date. That's the, that's the first thing. But what does it mean for the believer? And what it's getting at here for the believer is, you know, confess quickly at a time when you may be found because there's a sense when you aren't regularly just laying yourself bare and confessing, repenting before the Lord, where your heart will harden over time. And so just in, in love, can I, can I caution you against, some of you may react so strongly against guilt that you don't like confession, but guilt directed rightly is actually what makes you more human, not less. I mean, imagine if you lied to your spouse or to your friend and you felt no guilt about it. That'd be the sign of a seared conscience. So what David's saying here is confess quickly before your heart becomes increasingly hardened and, and, and seared. And what's beautiful about it is the more you mature, it's counterintuitive, but the more, you, the more you mature, you actually repent more, not less. The more you walk in accordance with God's spirit, the more you immerse yourself in his word and through prayer and in being in community, you actually begin to see things that you used to shrug off or things that you didn't even used to see at all and realize how it's grieving the Lord and being quick to repent. And so what repentance does is it's actually the means to growth, not the obstacle to it. I mean, when I when I ask for forgiveness from a good friend, uh, lately I've had to ask for forgiveness from Titus, when I ask for forgiveness from Kelsey, and it, it's genuine repentance, and they, they, I, they say the words, I forgive you? Like, that enlivens the relationship. It doesn't deaden it. And so it is with the Lord. Okay, so we need to repent quickly, regularly. Number three, we need to repent appropriately. Okay, so see how he says, I acknowledge my sin to you? When he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and then later on in verse 5, transgressions to the Lord, he's letting God be the straight edge for what leads him to feel guilty or not. And here's what I mean by, so there's this interesting place in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul is talking to this church that was very hard to pastor, and he tells him in chapter 4, in the beginning of the chapter, he says, I'm not going to be judged by you or any human court. In other words, in other words I'm not going to let myself be condemned by public opinion. But then he goes on to say, and he says, I'm not even going to judge myself. Even though my conscience is clear, that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That's very interesting. So you, so you see, on the one hand, he's saying, I'm not going to let public opinion dictate whether I feel guilty or not. But on the other hand, I'm not going to let my conscience dictate whether I feel guilty or not either, because my conscience's compass can be off as well. And so for some of you, just be so careful. First, on the end, on the side of public opinion, you always need to let the word of the Lord be your straight edge for knowing what's right and what's right and wrong. What's currently seen as okay and not okay in our culture looks completely different than what's okay and not okay in other nations and other cultures. It looks way different than it will in our own nation, even a hundred years from now. Public opinion changes all the time. Okay, but it's God's word that remains constant. And then when it comes to your own conscience, and I. Hopefully this is an encouragement to you guys because for some of you, whether it was through public opinion, maybe the words of a parent 
or a group of people in the past or present, sometimes there are, there are times where you're holding yourself guilty for, either because it's the voice inside of you or someone else's words that cut deeply, that are making you feel guilty for something you have no business to feel guilty over. Rather than letting what the Lord says about you dictate how you feel. And that's the freedom we have in the gospel. You don't need to be held a prisoner to something somebody may have told you or didn't tell you in the past. And that leads us to the fourth way we're to confess. We're to confess confidently. Confidently. So see the end of verse 5. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave. It's immediate. It's certain. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The thing that's scary about confessing and really laying yourself bare before, you know, and you guys know this, before another human being, before the Lord, is as soon as you lay yourself bare, now the other person holds all the cards, and they're in the, the, the power position, and they can now use that against you, uh, or just simply withhold forgiveness from you. But what David's saying here, and, and if you, especially if you've grown up in the church, and you've become cold to this idea, yeah, that, that God forgives. Yeah, of course God forgives me. He's God. That's what he's supposed to do. These are some of the most precious and astounding words in the entire Bible. That you know you can go before God and he immediately forgives you. Past, present, anything to come. And as I, I was like, to have that knowledge that God really doesn't hold anything against you in Christ, I was thinking about back to my college days, and this wasn't a shining moment in my biography, but uh, I was in a math class, and you know, in high school, like 80% of your grade is class assignments and homework, and then you know, 20% is your finals and tests. Well, you know, in university, it's like you have three exams. This is such a rude awakening for you as a friend. It's like, what? I have three things I do, and that's my grade, and you go into an existential, existential crisis. I don't even know if I have worth anymore. So maybe that was just me. So, <laughs> so I was in this math class, and Long story short, story for another day, I, I didn't show up for the second exam. I just skipped it completely. And so I'm a mess. And, you know, because that means I only have two other exams, the first one and the final. And I have to ace them just to barely pass the class. And this is a higher-level math class. It, it was pretty difficult. And so my teacher emails me. And she emails me. It was either that evening or the next day. And she says, hey, I noticed you, you weren't in class. And, you know, that, that was an, it was an exam day. You weren't there. Can you come into my office? I would just love to talk about it. And so I come into our office, and I just explain why. W it wasn't a good excuse. I just explain why I wasn't there for the exam. And she looks at me, and she goes, okay, let's get you help. Let's get you help with, you know, these other things that are going on in your life. And how about this? I'm not going to count it against you. I'm not going to count it against you. So we'll use the grade from your first exam and the grade from your final, and that will be your grade for the course. Does that sound good? I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I floated across the campus back to my apartment. Dr. Zietzman, if you're listening, thank you so much. And if, if I experienced that kind of freedom with an exam grade or a class, I mean, how much more with the Lord? The things that you're most ashamed of, the things that you most regret, those words that cut most deeply, the, no, the knowledge that God himself, fairest of 10,000, looks at you and says, I do not count anything against you. And how can this be? And we see in Romans chapter 4, David quotes the Psalms. He, David quotes the Psalm, Psalm 32. 
Have we mentioned that the Bible is one book? The Psalms are often quoted all throughout the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul's asking this question, how can a sinner stand before a holy God? And he's talking about it's those who don't try to earn it, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly. It's those who will be kind of righteous. And he says in chapter 4, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those, and here he quotes Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count Will, will not count his sin. And the question Paul's asking is, how can the just Lord not count your sin against you? And the answer he gives is Jesus. And, you know, as you think about the death of Jesus, Jesus didn't die by being beheaded or by having a sword shoved through his heart. Jesus died through crucifixion. And crucifixion's what? It's death through exposure, it's death through being laid completely bare to where even if he were to try to cover I mean, you're laid completely naked before people, and Jesus was before. He couldn't even try to cover himself because his hands were nailed to the cross. And why was Jesus being uncovered there? Why was he being laid bare there? Not just the humiliation before people, before God himself. And the reason is he was laying himself bare because he was bearing all of your sins so that when you trust in Jesus— and you go before the Lord, and you just uncover yourself, God covers you immediately with the robes of Jesus Christ and says, you are my precious child from now into eternity. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sins are covered because of what Christ himself gave up. And how should this impact us as a church, uh, how should this impact you? Uh, a few ways. Uh, one is, some of you, right, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, I get that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself for this thing that either happened to me, something I did, something I didn't do. And can you just know the message of this psalm is that's not what God has for you? I mean, by saying I can't forgive myself, you're saying actually what I did was of more worth and value than Jesus Christ because his love for me and his payment wasn't enough and you need to let it go. Number two, what's the life that results from this? What does it look like for us to be a forgiven church? See, think about that. Or for people to look at your life and them for, to say to you like, that person's forgiven. I think one of the things it means is, especially in our community, is we don't have to be quite so prickly with one another. Like, we're going to misstep toward each other. Uh, you know, we're going to call one another out, sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. But we, we don't have to be so prickly because our value is no longer tied to how we're perceived, but, but for who we are in Jesus. And also what it means, when, when we're a forgiven church, we can also really be vulnerable with other people. Um, you know, sometimes like in discipleship group, maybe this is just me, and, you know, like you're, you're, or you're just not even a discipleship group, but you're out with somebody, and you confess something that's going on in your life, and it's like just bad enough that they see you're being real, but it's not that really bad thing you're doing. But what is, what is this, what, what Christ has done, doesn't that free us to actually confess the most painful parts of our lives? 
I'm reading a book with uh, Andrew Workman and Chris Kahn, The Elders in Process. It, it's a book on uh, elder teams, and the author, Paul Tripp, one of the things he points out is one of the reasons why elder teams and pastoral teams fall apart is because they don't actually practice the gospel within their own team. Where, like, because, you know, as a pastor, you have to hold to these character qualifications, you actually don't confess your sin to one another, but then over time, it eventually comes out. But if you're a forgiven pastoral team, we can say, if, you're, if, you're a for, if we're a forgiven church, you can be real about that stuff that's going on. Number three, what does it do? We see this in verse eight. It leads to a life of joy-filled obedience when you know you're forgiven and your sins are covered. So see, verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Now, notice the order of this psalm. Verse five, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you. So it's the Old Testament equivalent of what Jesus told, tells the woman, the woman caught in adultery in John eight. I do not condemn you, therefore sin no more. And everything depends on that order. <laughs> Like, the essence of Christianity, the very nature of God and the outcome of your life depends on that order. I do not condemn you, therefore, go and sin no more. That's the heart of the gospel. Every other way of thinking, whether it's secular humanism or any other type of religion, it's do this, don't do that, only if you do enough, then you know you have worth. And the gospel, its worth is given to you in Jesus Christ. Now you obey in freedom. You know, so sometimes I, I hear people, and I know this is in the church, outside the church, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is more of a legalistic God, but then we see the God of grace in the New Testament. No, what, we see it here in the Old Testament. From first to last, from old to new in eternity, we have a God of grace who brings you into a kingdom not based on guilt or goading, but on grace, where you can leave behind your regret and shame and walk away from the sins that are killing you and walk into a life that is full and free because Christ has forgiven for you so that you can live for him. And so as you think about obedience here, for some of you, is obedience synonymous with legalism? Or is obedience synonymous with unhappiness? Okay, legalism isn't obedience. Legalism is selfishness, where you're obeying just to try to get God to bless you or to look good in front of other people. But here, see in verse 9, it says, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. That's to be curbed with the bit and bridle. In other words, if your main motivation for obedience is fear of pain or punishment, that's what a bit and brought, you know, it pulls the, pulls the mule or the horse so that they go or the rider goes, then you, you haven't gotten the gospel. And so see, what true repentance is, it's, it's not just feeling sad about bad things you've done, but it's turning from a false way of living into the true and beautiful way of living in Christ. And so just take a, an audit of your life. I thought about giving specific ex examples, but I think it's just good to be broad here. Where is there a part of your life that you're still holding on to? Because obedience to you isn't freedom. It, it's unhappiness. It's a prison. But God, obedience doesn't earn your salvation, but what, what David's showing us here is that one of the ways you know you've embraced what Christ did and is continuing to do in your life is you walk in the ways that God teaches us we should go. And finally, what does a life um, that's been forgiven result in? We see that in verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who's trust, who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. 
the whole journey of this psalm is through the valleys of confession to the mountaintops of forgiveness, obedience, culminating on the path through the gates of gladness, where you are ushered into the eternal joy and hilarity of God. Did you know that the God of the scriptures, the God who made you, the God who knows you, at his heart is a God of joy? It might help to put it this way. As you walk with God, as you hear from God, as you do life with God, is he ever laughing? Because that's who the Lord is. It doesn't mean he ignores your sorrows and grief, of course not. But the whole point of him coming into relationship you, with you wasn't just for forgiveness. More than that, it was to laugh with you and to delight in you as his child. And um, some of you are familiar with the author, Russian novelist Dostoevsky. You know, he wrote The Brothers Karamazov, and he really wrestled, wrestled with severe depression. And in Brothers Karamazov, he is commenting on the first miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John, where Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding, of Cana, uh, wedding at Cana of Galilee. And what Dostoevsky says, you know, a man just mired in depression that he couldn't, it was so hard for him to escape from. He says, you know, I think when Jesus turned the water into wine, what he's showing us is he didn't just come to take care of our grief, but he came to take care of our gladness as well. And for some of you, maybe that's really hard to feel or to believe, but the promise of this psalm and the promise of the gospel is that when you walk with Jesus, he's not only with you in your grief, but you'll begin to experience more and more tastes of his gladness until on that great and final day, the new heaven and new earth, his joy will so overflood your being that you're, I think it'll be something like you'll be weeping and laughing at the same time. And so the encouragement of this psalm to you is just to make a regular practice of fully, quickly, appropriately, confidently repenting. And then you'll get to experience what David did as well, that happy or blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that uh, you see all of who we are. Um, and that not only, you do, not only do you forgive us, but you make us new uh, and empower us to walk in your ways, Lord. And so I pray that our church will be a congregation who walks as those who are forgiven. As our members and attenders go out this week into their workplaces, may it be so clear to their coworkers and employers and people under them uh, that they're working with someone who's forgiven. Uh, thank you so much for Christ and the incredible cost he paid.